As we continue our study in the life of David, 1 Samuel chapter 21, and we'll look at the whole chapter. Have you ever been on the run? Have you ever been on the run from something or someone? I've told you about some of my episodes of being chased by dogs and how I was able to escape them. But there was a time when I was in high school that I tried to outrun a police officer. It happened when I was on my way to a baseball game that I was playing in. Some friends of mine, I was driving, they were in the car with me, and we were driving through this area of Irvine that I just wasn't familiar with. And I came around this corner, I was probably going a little bit too fast, and out of nowhere there was this stop sign. And I just knew that, uh, you know, as I went to break, I wasn't going to make it. I was just going to slide through the thing. So I punched it, and uh, as I hit the intersection, I noticed there was a patrol car sitting right there. Now, I knew that I was in trouble when I saw his lunch flying out the window, and... uh, (laughs) But my first instinct was to, to, to try and outrun him. And so I turned down this street and I'm thinking I'll hide in a neighborhood. And my mom's over here. She doesn't know this. And she's like, oh, I can't believe it. <laughs> it's one of the things of having your parents in your congregation. You know, it's got to watch what you share. <laughs> There's certain things I share when they're not here. So, uh, no, <laughs> they thought I was an angel growing up, but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, I, I turn down this street and I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm going to hide and maybe we can pull into a driveway, we'll duck in. But he was too fast. I couldn't escape him. And needless to say, he was pretty upset when uh, he finally pulled me over. And yes, it was dumb trying to outrun a policeman. But what's even dumber is trying to run from God. And I've done that before, too. One time when I was in college... And uh, I was at Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, and I was uh, ministering in the high school ministry there. And and at that particular time in my life, I knew that God had called me into ministry. I was training to be a youth pastor, and, and I was dating this gal that I thought I was going to marry. And I really liked her a lot, but during that time in my life, as I do now, I would take these prayer walks, and I would walk two, three miles almost every day, and as I walked, I would pray. In the first part of the walk, I would just pour my heart out to the Lord. On the second part of the walk, I would just listen and ask Him to, to speak to me. And every time I took that walk, God was telling me, He was speaking to me, that this girl that I was dating, that she wasn't the one, that she wasn't the one I was supposed to marry, that He just wanted us to be friends. But I didn't want to hear that. And so I began, I just quit taking those walks. It was like, you know, I'm just going to quit talking to God, you know. And what was really interesting is, is although I, I was completely ignoring God in that particular area of my life, for about three months it lasted during that period of my life, God was blessing me. God was working in my life. God was opening up all of these new avenues for ministry and to, to serve him. You see... God wasn't going to let me ignore him. He wasn't going to let me run from him in that area of my life. He loved me too much, and he had a a better plan for my life. And so during that time, when I was ignoring him, I I also went up to Twin Peaks, and I was involved in in leading uh, uh, the youth at a family camp there. 
And as I was there, Richard Semino, my high school pastor, he came up. He was the guy that I was working with, and he was there teaching the adults. And he was supposed to go back down the hill on Wednesday to lead the high school ministry. But instead, he asked me to do it. He said, would you mind going down? We're showing a movie. It's this Josh McDowell thing. It's on prophecy. And all you need to do is start the meeting and start the movie and then, uh, you know, wrap it up at the end. And I thought, that'd be great. And I was thinking, this is wonderful. I'll get to see this girl. And, and uh, you know, I was dating. It'll be a good thing. And so I go down, and, and I'm sitting there watching this movie that's supposed to be on prophecy. And instead, Josh McDowell goes into this big, long story about how he was dating this girl, Paula, before he was, uh, or he was training to be a pastor. And everybody had told him that this was, uh, you know, the girl for him. She would be the perfect pastor's wife. Now, everybody was telling me that as well about this other girl that I was dating. But God was telling Josh that she wasn't the one. But he fought it just like I was doing. He waited like six months and, and just, you know, was fighting these feelings inside. I guess he too was ignoring God. And he's telling this story about how he finally, after six months, he, he breaks down and he tells Paula, you know, you're not the one and we're not supposed to be together. And he broke her heart. And, and, and so I'm watching this movie and I'm thinking, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be up in the mountains right now. This is supposed to be on prophecy. You know, God, what are you trying to do here? And after the movie, one of my best friends, Todd Lauderdale, we're walking out, and I'm walking with my girlfriend, and we're heading out to the parking lot, and he just says, out of the blue, oh, you guys are going to be just like Josh and Paula. And I'm thinking, why did he say that? <laughs> and so that night, we're talking, me and this girl I was dating, and, and uh, I said, so what did you think of the movie? She said, I thought it was good. It made me think about me and you, though. I said, really? I said, me too. What were you thinking? And, uh, and she said, well, you know what? All I would say is this, Rob. If, if God ever told you that we weren't supposed to be together, that, that you wouldn't wait like Josh did, but you would tell me right away. <laughs> now, for three months, you know, I've been dealing. I just started crying right there. And I said, you know, for three months I've been feeling this way. I've been ignoring God, and you're not the one. And we broke up that night. Now, I didn't know that it was that same week that I was going to meet Denise, who would later be my wife, who would become my best friend and, and, and my soulmate. And, and, and what God was showing me through that time is that, that he had a plan for my life. He had a plan that, that was better than the plan that I thought that I was on. And he saw things that, that I didn't see. And the same thing we find true to be in David's life here in 1 Samuel chapter 21. We find David on the run. He's running from Saul. Now this, this run that he was on as he was fleeing from Saul, it was ordained by God. We looked at it last week. Jonathan shot the arrow, but Jonathan was just the instrument. The arrow was from God, and he was going to take David on this pilgrimage. He was going to take him out into this time in his life when he was going to become a fugitive. That he was going to be on the run, but it was during this time that God was going to be teaching him some great things. See, God wanted to use this time in his life for a purpose, to make David into the leader that he would eventually be. But what David starts to do during this time is instead of just running from Saul, David starts to run from the Lord. Now, one of the things that points to the Bible being inspired by God that the Bible is the absolute truth of God for the society throughout the ages is that the Bible uniquely presents its heroes at times in unfavorable light. 
It tells us the good, the bad, and the ugly. We read of Moses committing murder. We read of Abraham giving his wife into the harem of Pharaoh. We read of Peter's denials. And and here in this section dealing with David's life, we find David, he's hit rock bottom. He turns to deceit. He turns to compromise. We find him acting in a very undignified manner. And the Bible uniquely tells the moral failures of its heroes. But their failures only serve to magnify the grace of God in their lives. We're told in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16, that though a righteous man may fall seven times, he rises again. And although we see David falling in a big way here in this chapter, we see him rising again as he turns to the Lord. And we see that God's grace is more than ready to cover David's sin and to carry him through this time here in his life. Let's read here, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? And so David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand and whatever can be found. And and the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. And then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly, women have been kept from us about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doag, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because of the king's business required haste. So the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will, take that, for there is no other except that one here. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. Let's just pause there for a few minutes. Here we see that David runs to the house of the Lord. Now, David runs to the right place, but he does the wrong thing once he gets there. He runs to the right place. He goes to the house of the Lord, but he does the wrong thing when he gets there. Ahimelech sees him. He can tell by his countenance that something is wrong. Plus, he thinks it's rather odd that David, being such a prominent person, would be out wandering around by himself. And so he says to David, he says, why are you alone and why is no one with you? And David responds here in verse 2 by lying. He, in effect, says that he's on special business for the king and had to leave in haste and he didn't have neither food nor a weapon. So could Ahimelech spare him? David goes to the right place, but he does the wrong thing. He lies and we can do that as well. We come into God's house, the right place, and God sends into our path an Ahimelech, a friend, a pastor, another brother or sister who comes to you and they say, Hey, how you doing? 
Or they look at you and they can tell by your countenance something is wrong. And they say, hey, what's wrong? What's going on? Instead of being honest, instead of being truthful, we say, hey, I'm doing fine. Everything's great. Now, here's the thing. God sent that person to minister to us. I mean, it's an amazing thing when we, you know, being such selfish people, notice something wrong in somebody else's life. So when someone comes up to you and says, hey, what's wrong? Usually, God has sent that person. God has allowed that person to see that there's something going on in in your life. But when we answer in that type of way, we don't give God the opportunity to use that person in our lives because we're not being real. We're hiding behind a mask. We're hiding behind a shadow. We're hiding behind some facade. We put on the smile. Hey, everything's great. Everything's wonderful. And that's what David does here. He lies about why he is there. Now, maybe he did this to protect himself. Thinking that, you know, Ahimelech, he'll run to, to Saul. Maybe he felt like, I just don't know Ahimelech enough that I can really trust him. Maybe he felt like he was, maybe he did this to protect Ahimelech. Thinking, you know, the, the least he knows, the better. Because if he knows what's going on, then Saul's really going to get him. We don't know the reason why he did this. But by doing so, David didn't give this man sent from God the opportunity to be God's agent to minister in David's life. And so David runs to the house of God, but he doesn't do business with God once he gets there. And again, we can do that too. We run to the house of God. And God uses the message. He uses maybe the worship. He uses another person to speak to our hearts. And he pinpoints a problem, but we don't respond. He pinpoints something that's going on in our lives and it's not right. But we don't deal with it. We don't do business with God. It's like going to the doctor. And you have this pain in your chest and you're hoping that he's just going to say, here's a pill, here's a shot, you're fine, go on your way. But instead he says, you've got some real problems. Your arteries are clogged and we need to do surgery. I'm going to set it for five days. And he lays it out. But here's what we do. We think, you know what? Um, I'm not going to show up to the appointment. I'll take my chances. What does this doctor know anyway? You know, and we just kind of think that way. And we can do that with the Lord. He reveals that surgery is needed. He reveals that there is something that needs to be cut out. There's sin that needs to be removed. There's a bad habit that needs to be replaced. But we say, thanks, but no thanks. You know, I'll just kind of go on my own. I'll just kind of do my thing. And so David here comes to the house of God, but he doesn't do business with God. He says to Ahimelech, is there any food? And he says, the only bread that we have here is the show bread, the holy bread. Now, this was the bread, the 12 loaves that sat there in the tabernacle. It was called the bread of faces. It was that bread that was to be eaten before the presence of God. But there there came a time, I think it was once a week, where they would change that bread. Or once every couple of days, they would take those loaves and they would change that bread. And they would put new hot bread in its place. And that's what happened on this day. It had been in there in the morning. And now he is, Ahimelech was taking it out. And he said, this is the only bread that I have. Now, here's the thing. Ahimelech, by giving this bread to David, was not breaking the law. He was breaking, though, the religious tradition. In the book of Leviticus, in chapter 24, in verses 5 and 6, it stated that the priests were to eat the showbread. Now, the tradition that was taken from that statement was that only the priest would eat the showbread. 
And it made some sense because only the priest could go there into the holy place there within the tabernacle. Not anybody could go in. And so the tradition became that only the priests were to eat the showbread. And so some people question, why did Ahimelech do this? But he wasn't breaking the law. He was breaking only the tradition. See, Ahimelech rightly understood that human need was more important than religious customs and traditions. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12 and in Luke chapter 6, Jesus, when he was criticized uh, with his disciples for breaking the religious traditions, he refers to this story, to this episode in the life of David. And to what Ahimelech did, that he was justified, that it was totally right for him to give food to David and to his men, to give them that bread because they were hungry. Illustrating there that human need supersedes religious tradition. And we need to remember that. Because, you see, we can come into that place sometimes where we create our own traditions. I think back to the early days of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. When Pastor Chuck was there, you know, just in the beginning days of the the sanctuary where they're at now. And he was ministering to all these hippies. And a lot of times they would, you know, come in there to the church and they'd be in, in their bare feet. And there was kind of the religious tradition in churches at that time, like in restaurants today. No shirt, no shoes, no eat. And, and that was kind of the, the attitude. And so these kids were coming in and their feet, you know, were all soiled from walking barefoot through the parking lot. And they were getting the carpet dirty. So one of the elders one day puts a sign up on the door, you know, no shoes, no shirt, you can't come in. And Chuck, you know, comes in in the morning and he sees it and he rips it down. He gets his elders together and says, what's going on? And and one of them says, well, these kids, you know, they're coming in their bare feet and they're ruining the carpet. And Chuck's response was rip up the carpet. You know, if it's if that's what we're worried, take out the carpet and let the kids come in again. Another illustration, human need superseding religious tradition. And we need to watch that we don't fall into that. Now, another thing worth noting is when Jesus told this story here about David in the Gospels, there's no mention here of David's lie. He doesn't mention David's lie. He doesn't mention David being in the wrong. And that is a good illustration of God's grace and forgiveness, that he remembers what we do right, and he forgives and he forgets What we do wrong. David prayed in Psalm 25. Do not remember the sins of my youth. Nor my transgressions. According to your mercy remember me. For your goodness sake. O Lord. Now we pray today. For God to forgive us. And to forget our sin. That our sins would be forgiven. That they would be removed. And they are on the basis of what Jesus did for us. On the cross at Calvary. Well, David prayed that same prayer, that his sins would be forgiven and that they would be removed. And they were, but on the basis of what Jesus would do on the cross at Calvary. Now, that's an amazing concept to ponder, that David received forgiveness based on what Jesus was going to do. But here's the thing. Although David's sins were forgiven, there are always consequences to our sins. David would come to horribly regret this lie. He would come to horribly regret this time in his life because Doag, the chief herdsman of Saul, was there and David saw him. 
And he knew that this was going to be a bad scene. And Doag goes and tells Saul. And what ends up happening, you can read about it in chapter 22. Saul sends Doag to go and kill 85 families of the priest living there in Nob. Eighty-five families were massacred horribly because of David's sin. And only one person, Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, escapes. And he runs to where David is. And in verse 22 of chapter 22, David says to him, I knew that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. David had to live with that the rest of his life. In knowing that his sin caused the death of all of those families. And that's the thing that we need to mark here in our brains is that there are always consequences to sin. Although our sins are forgiven, although they're forgotten, there will always be consequences. And oftentimes it's others who are affected. It's your wives, guys, that are affected by your compromise. It might be your kids when you log on onto the computer and you're looking at some pornography or something that you shouldn't be. There's a great chance that your kids, your sons are going to be affected by that. It's your husband's ladies that are affected by your compromises. It's the people in our lives that are looking at us, that are looking to us that, as examples that are affected when we compromise in that way. There are always consequences to sin. And oftentimes it's others who are destroyed. It's others who are ripped off. It's others that are taken down. Now, there were two things that David asked for. The first was food. The second was for a sword there In verse 8 and 9, he says, do you have a sword? Do you have a spear? Do you have anything? And Ahimelech says, all I have is the sword of Goliath. Now, here's an interesting thought. How did Ahimelech get the sword of Goliath? We read there in 1 Samuel 17, when, when David conquered Goliath, that he took the sword and he put it in his tent. It was a souvenir of God's faithfulness, of God's victory there in his life. I suggest to you that the way Ahimelech, it got into Ahimelech's hands, was that David came and presented it to the Lord. That he presented it there at the tabernacle. He presented it there at that place where it would stand forever as a memorial of God's victory to the people of Israel and overcoming the giant. But here's the thing. David presents it to the Lord and now David is on the run without a weapon and the Lord gives it back to him. And there's a lesson in this for us. You see, you can't outgive the Lord. Whatever you give to him, he always gives back to you, especially in your day of need. But sometimes we can find ourselves wrestling with this giving thing as it relates to our time, as it relates to our finances. And we think, you know, I can't tithe. It's just not in the budget. How am I going to do this? But this is one area, one of the only areas in our life where God says, test me on this. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, the Lord says, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and test me now in this. Prove me, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. This is the only time in the entire Bible where the Lord says, test me. 
where he says, prove me, put me to the test in this, in bringing your tithes into the storehouse. The storehouse is that place of congregational meeting, that place of meeting, that place of dispersing. And God says, test me. Prove me and watch what happens. Watch how I take care of your needs because you can never outgive me. And so you come, take it, bring it into the storehouse and watch and see if the windows of heaven are not opened up for you to receive. David gives the sword of Goliath to the Lord and the Lord gives it back to him there in his time of need. But think about this. I wonder what was going through David's mind as he took this sword. I wonder what he was thinking about as he put it back there on his side. Did he remember how he came to win that sword for Israel? Did he remember that victory that day? Did he remember that he didn't do it with lies? He didn't do it with trickery. He didn't do it with half-truths, but he did it with a bold trust in the Lord. That he believed God and he trusted the Lord to, to sort out the consequences. He trusted God to give him victory. The last time that David held this sword in his hands, it was to take off the head of the giant and to kill him. But the sword wasn't David's weapon of faith. It was his sling. It was his stones. And David now remembers the victory, but not the faith that brought the victory. David adds this sword to his arsenal, but not the faith. It would have been better for him to add the faith that brought the victory. And, you know, sometimes we can pile up our trophies in our lives. We can pile up those trophies of victories of times in our in our lives where we took those steps of faith and God worked and God moved. But it would be better. It would be better for us. To have that faith than to have the trophy. And David takes the sword, but his faith is still faltering. And at this point, David is starting to trust in his own cleverness rather than the Lord. And he's on the run again. And this time he runs from the house of the Lord and he runs to the world, which is always the result when you come into God's house and you don't do business with God. Is you will run from this place out into the world and you'll seek your refuge there. And that's what David does. But God's not going to let him get away with it. Verse 10, notice, then David arose. And fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And so he changed his behavior before them and pretended madness in their hands and scratched on the doors of the gate and let his saliva fall down on his beard. And then Achish said to his servants, look, you see, the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of a madman that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Now, this is comical to me of how when we are not trusting in the Lord, we will do the stupidest of things. David leaves Nob with Goliath's sword at his side and he heads for Gath. Who was from Gath? Goliath was from Gath. So here's David with the very sword that he used to cut off Goliath's head and he's running to Goliath's hometown, you know. 
and he's showing up there. Maybe like Randy Johnson after, you know, the, the Diamondbacks beat up the Yankees last night. Randy Johnson going into the Yankee clubhouse and saying, hey, anybody want to go to dinner tonight, you know? I mean, he's the last person they want to see. And the same thing is true of David. He goes to this place hoping to find refuge in some asylum, but his plan backfires because they recognize who he is. They remember what he did, that he didn't just kill Goliath, but he killed 10,000 of their men. And so they say, hey, this is David. This is the the guy, the king of Israel. This is their champion, their choice guy. He killed 10,000 of our men. And David is full of fear, and he responds by acting like a crazy man. Completely undignified, he degrades himself and the Lord. He pretends to be mad. He's scratching at the gates. Saliva's dripping down his beard. I mean, he's like foaming at the mouth. And these guys are like, you know, or Akish is like, this guy is insane. Why did I have enough mad men around here? You know, I don't need another one. Why did they bring this guy here? And here we see the second thing that our sin does. It disgraces the Lord and it brings shame to us. I mean, this was David. This was Israel's champion. This was the guy that stood as a testimony that their God was greater than the gods of the Philistine. And here David is seen in the lowest place. He runs to the world, and in order to save his life, he totally alters his behavior, disgracing himself, disgracing the Lord. And that's what compromise always does. You alter your behavior in such a way that you are disgraced, and so is the Lord. That's what compromise will always do. Your behavior is altered in such a way Or your testimony, your witness is ruined. And God's name is blasphemed. And I think one of the most horrific things that we can ever hear someone say to us is, why are you here? I thought you were a Christian. Or why are you doing that? I thought you were a Christian. Why why are you involved in that? I thought you were a Christian. And if you've ever heard those words, you know how it can cut so deeply, like just a a knife piercing your heart. When I was in high school, there was a game I was playing as I was playing baseball, and I was sharing with these guys on my team, and there was this one guy that was always razzing me, and I didn't think he was paying attention, and and this one game, I I just blew up. And I threw my helmet, I threw my bat, and the next day at practice, this guy says, you know, He says, when I saw you do that, it just broke my heart. I thought you were a Christian. And I was just like, you know, I mean, it was like killer. But that's what happens. Whenever we compromise, we alter our behavior. And God is disgraced. It brings shame to our witness. David runs to this place, runs to the world. He's hoping to find his refuge in the world, but he's not going to find it there. And neither will you and neither will me. You see, the Lord loves you too much. People don't fall away from the Lord. That's a misnomer. They walk away from the Lord. Jude, in the book of Jude, it tells us, Now unto him who is able to keep us from falling. In John chapter 10, Jesus, the good shepherd, says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. 
We don't fall away from the Lord, but God gives us a choice after we've come to the Lord that if we want to forsake him, he's not going to hold us down and say, no, you can't leave. And sometimes people will walk away from the Lord. But know this, although God allows you to do that, he makes it very, very hard because he loves us so much. And we go out into the world, and because we have too much of the Lord, we really can't enjoy the world. But then the other problem that happens is we come back into the church, we've got too much of the world to really enjoy the Lord. And so we find ourselves in this paradox situation. It's a miserable way to live. But know this, the person who stays in that limbo state will eventually really slip up because although the spirit is willing, Jesus said, the flesh is weak. And if I'm not feeding my spirit, I'm feeding my flesh. And if I'm feeding my flesh, it's getting stronger and stronger. And the Holy Spirit is not going to force us to walk with God. But he will not invade your free choice, but he will call. He will urge. He will convict. He'll make you, he'll seek to make you miserable in your sin. Because he loves you and he knows that that sin is going to destroy you. David runs to the world seeking safety, seeking asylum, seeking shelter, seeking friendships. In the army, in the ranks of the wicked, But God doesn't let him find it because God had another plan for David. God had another shelter for David. Oh, it wouldn't be found in an army, but it would be found in a cave. He had friendships that he was seeking to bring into David's life because he wanted David to be the one who would lead this group of men. And we read about it in chapter 22. Look at the first two verses. This will be our study next week. He says, David therefore departed... From there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And so when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. And so he became a captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. David comes to his senses and he runs. And he flees to this cave. And the very things that he was seeking there in Gath, God brings to him there in that cave. He brings to him there in that moment, in that quiet place. And it's at this time in David's life that he turns back to the Lord, that he turns back to the word. It's this time in his life that he writes Psalm 56 and that he also writes Psalm 34. And there in Psalm 56, David says, I'm going to praise you for your word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul the Apostle says, Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has light with darkness and what fellowship has Christ with Belial? Basically saying, look, if you're walking walking with the Lord, you, you don't have anything in common with those who aren't. So don't be unequally yoked together in that type of relationship. And then he says, come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. And then he makes this promise, and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And then he starts chapter 7 off in this way. After saying that, he says, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 
And there Paul hits on a very important truth. The motivation for our desire to live holy lives is found in the promises of God. That God is faithful. That God has promised blessing for us. That God has promised to be with us through every situation, through every season of life that we find ourselves in. Someone put it this way. The crown of revelation is thickly studded with the pearls of promise. And God encourages his people by multiplying promises to them. And these promises are suited to every condition that we find ourselves in, whether it's joy or sorrow, sickness or health, poor or prosperity, weakness or in strength. Our experiences can change, but in every new condition we find ourselves in, God has a promise that is appropriate for it. Someone else said that the manna of promise covers the path of pilgrimage. And the thing that David was going to come to understand here, God had made a promise to him, several of them. And that along this path that he was going to walk in, no matter how difficult it would be, no matter how weak he would become, that there was a promise from the Lord to carry him through. And so David would say, in God, I will praise his word. What can man do to me? I have put my trust in the Lord. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? For you have delivered my soul from death and you have kept my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of the living. That's what David discovered there in that cave. Instead of running from God, he runs to the Lord and God meets him there. Turn with me to Psalm 34 and we'll wrap this up. I want to just note a couple of things. David says in the first three verses, I will bless the Lord at all times. At the lo- one of the lowest points to date in his life in this season, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Now, here's why. Here's why he could say that. Here's why he's encouraging us to do it. Verse four, he says, I have sought the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me from all of my fears. When did David's fears flee? When he sought the Lord. When he sought the Lord. The same thing holds true for you and I. In verse 7, he says, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. And then he says this in verse 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Now, listen, when did David see that the Lord was good? When did he write this particular statement? Was it after he killed Goliath? Was it after he was anointed as king? Was it after he becomes king? No. It's after one of the lowest points in his life when he has failed miserably. Eighty-five families have been killed. He's disgraced the Lord. He's brought shame to Israel. He's brought shame to his own name. But it's in this time that David experiences the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. And David says, taste and see that the Lord is is good. It was after he had fallen and he had been 
forgiven. And the same thing holds true for you and I. The Lord, I think, is the most good to us when we come to that place where we realize, oh, not in the the case of, you know, the blessing of the raise at the job or any of those things. That's wonderful. But in those times when we know, man, I've, I've blown it. I've sinned royally. I've messed up. I've just I've disgraced the Lord. And we come to him. And he says, I paid the price for that sin. My blood covers that iniquity. I died in your place for that specific wrong. And we confess it. And he says, it's forgiven. It's cleansed. It's gone. It's removed. David would say later on after his sin with Bathsheba and he again experiences God's grace there and he says oh how happy is the man whose sins are forgiven and whose transgressions have been removed oh how happy and we come into that place when we experience and we we firsthand the grace of God the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God Upon our lives that we say, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And guys, we live in a world where people are walking around and they're full of guilt. And they need to hear that word from the Lord. Oh, taste and see that he is good. That he has an abundance of grace, an abundance of mercy to cover that sin. If you would just, instead of running from him, would run to him. And you would find that his grace is sufficient. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy. And Lord, most of us sitting here today can rightfully say that we have experienced that very thing. We have tasted of the waters of your grace. We have tasted and partaken of the well of your forgiveness. And Lord, you are good. We bless you, Lord. Thank you that you love us enough to put roadblocks in our path. When we are going in a direction that is not your best for us. Thank you, Lord, that you make it so hard. For us to resist you. That you love us that much. That you're that patient with us. And Lord I pray today. As we. Close this time together. That if there are any here who. Are running from you. If there are any here who are ignoring you. In some area of their lives. As they have come today into this house, I pray that they would do business with you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.